Hi there, and welcome to a very, very early recording of the Next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Will Mavity, and this week we are starting a very special series called Next Best Adaptation, where you, our readers and listeners, voted on three films that are adapted screenplay contenders based on source materials, books, articles, graphic novels, short films. We here on the podcast have a book club where once a month we will read one of those books, analyze it, and in turn look at its chances as an Oscar contender analyzing the source material. This week we're starting with Gerard Conley's Boy Erased, which is being adapted by Joel Edgerton into a film starring Lucas Hedges, Joel Edgerton, Nicole Kidman, and <laughs> Russell Crowe. Here with me today, I have JC Aldridge. Hi, everybody. Nicole Ackman, all the way from the UK. <laughs> Hi, guys. And joining us for the first time ever, my good friend, my extremely literate friend, Lindy Smith. <laughs> Hi. So, everyone, tell me basically your initial thoughts on the book as a whole, standing on its own as a work of literature. Nicole, do you want to go first? All right. I was about to say I can start. Um, I actually really enjoyed it, if enjoy is a word that you can use with a book like this that deals with a fairly <laughs> traumatic subject. So I was like, yeah, I enjoy Schindler's List. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, but I actually, you know, obviously I had heard of gay conversion therapy, but I knew very little about it and like what that actually meant. Um, and so for me, it was partially just really eye-opening to to read this memoir about, you know, someone who'd actually been in it. Um, I also thought that it was actually like very well written, especially for a memoir. I thought that the non-chronological part of it and kind of the flashing around, well, at first it was a bit confusing. It ended up making a lot of sense with kind of the psychological state of the narrator. Um, but yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed it both like as a book and also just as a like educational piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree, Nicole. I, um, I liked a lot. I thought my, I, I did sometimes find that it had um, a passive voice in certain places where I would have thought that there would be um a lot more of an upset, but I mean, he talks a lot about how the book, how that time in his life was so pushed back and that, you know, I'm sure as we'll speak about, there aren't any photos or any kind of real footage of his time there. So of course, some of his memories are going to have that passive voice because it's not like he's reliving them in the moment. But I, I did too. I thought it was really um, well-written and, and I grew up in Tennessee, and so, um, I, and the Bible Belt, and especially that that whole era, I remember that kind of viscerally. And so, it's um, so reading this book really brought back some like painful memories of things that happened to my own family members who had come out or had already come out during those years. So, um, it definitely is a learning tool and very educational about a about a type of um, minority, I don't even know what the, I'm not even, oh, it's too early for words. <laughs> but, 
but yeah, I it, I enjoyed it. I did. To to clarify about the non chronological aspect, just for anyone who's listening to this, like, so half of the book is sort of, you know, Conley's life as his like homosexuality starts to sort of derail what everyone had pictured for him, and then the other half is um, his two weeks um, kind of undergoing this, you know, gay conversion therapy. And the two are sort of sliced together um, in a really interesting way. Um, and I really, really enjoy that aspect of it. And I think it'll translate to film probably very, very well. Um, I felt like the book was maybe a little bit overlong in parts. Um, because realistically, like, not a ton actually happens plot-wise. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is a lot of, like, really excellent stuff in the book. And I do think it's well-written. Um Did- did you feel like the prose was a little purple at times? Did you feel like he overwrote some? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the that the writing on one end, it was sort of like, okay, I get the point. But then also, so I personally, like as a point of contrast, was not raised in a religious environment like at all. Like religion played no part in my life. And this book mm-hmm. actually did really make me sort of sympathize with this fundamentalist Christian perspective Um in a way that I'd never really been able to tap into before. So that I think is a sign of very good writing on Conley's part. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think it it is a good point to make about the book that it does deal very strongly with his, you know, religious upbringing and also obviously his father is kind of in the process of becoming a Baptist um, preacher during it. And for me, I grew up in North Carolina, um, but not in any kind of religiously fundamental environment. Um, I'm from Raleigh. So it was the kind of thing where I'm realizing that as I was growing up, this was probably happening around me, but I wasn't seeing it. So it really made me wonder how many people I know, um, especially older members of the LGBT community that I know, went through something similar. Yeah, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I grew up in Georgia, too. I feel like we, we all have backgrounds in the South, pretty much. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I didn't I didn't know Christians like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is frustrating to me that we don't see more of the therapy itself. And I understand he has repressed it, um, mm-hmm. but there did feel to me and I guess this is to be expected in a memoir that there's a lot of telling and not a lot of showing and it's funny because he describes what that therapy does to you is that um, it reduces you to someone who doesn't actually feel you talk about things you talk about emotions um, without actually expressing them and it does sound like that's something he hasn't kind of escaped It was also interesting to me the realization that a lot of what changed him doesn't seem as, and maybe it was because we didn't see much of the therapy. It seems more like it was what happened before with his family than the actual therapy itself. I I was 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 anyone else a little surprised? It was ten days. I, I reading the description, I had it in my head. This would be something he was at for. Oh yeah. Yeah, for going no, on for a long period of time. Especially mm-hmm. because, like, as soon as he gets to the facility, you know, he meets people who have been there for, you know, two or three years. And so I was sort of like, is he going to 
be undergoing this treatment for two or three years. Yeah, I also, I was surprised, but then there was also part of me that was like, okay, thank God it wasn't more. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it was, I found it very difficult to read those parts of the therapy because it kind of, you know, made me, um, I felt it was fairly easy to get sucked into that. And like, at times I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, hold on, this is a really weird, like, train of logic that they're building. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very easy to see how you could kind of get sucked into it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's, so I did, I grew up in a, in a very liberal family, but I did know a lot of um, fundamentalist Christians in my area that were very uh, disconcerting. And I remember pretty vividly, my, my dad took my mom and I to this like special preacher who was in town, very fundamentalist Baptist. And it was this huge kind of mega church event. And I remember my mom and I were so uncomfortable with the things the preacher was saying about, about gay, um, about being gay, about like people going to hell. It was just very fire and brimstones. And we ended up leaving and sitting in the car. (laughs) Um, But it was, it was really terrifying because they didn't want us to leave. Like we would try to leave and the ushers would be like, are you sure? No, you should sit down, like sit. And we were like, no. (laughs) Yeah. So, So reading this book was like, Oh, like it just brought back so many just I could just imagine like they're so manipulative in just a weird, creepy way that's like not outright, but still just gives you kind of the spine tingling feeling. And it just oh, yeah, I didn't want it to keep going on either. <laughs> yeah. Was anyone else like this might sound funny, but I got really angry while I was reading this, mm-hmm. which oh, I'm yeah. not someone who like okay. gets angry that much, but I would like find myself needing to put it down because I was just like, I like, I wanted to go yell at the people behind Love in Action, the um, <laughs> program that he was in. Like, mm-hmm. it, I didn't feel like it, it definitely was a book that I felt like brought a lot of emotion out in me while I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a sensation of being righteously wronged here, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And also, you know, we're talking a lot about love and action, but the things that happened, uh, lest we give too many spoilers to people who haven't read the book, the things that happened to Gerard on his college campus that were not handled are pretty horrific, particularly in light of events of the last six to nine months. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nicole, it's it's interesting what you said about it making you really angry. And what I found so interesting about this is like how sort of conflicted Gerard Conley is throughout all of this because, you know, he never wants to be there. You know, he does not want to be at the Love and Action facility. But at yeah. certain points, he does want the treatment to work. You know, yeah, like it's not rebelling against the system the whole time, which, you know, I think the um, sort of the overview of the plot would sort of imply. And I think it's a much more complicated relationship. And so I'm sort of excited to see if, you know, the script and the acting cap like captures that that interplay. Yeah, I I think it definitely is clear how much he has to lose. Um, and you know, nothing is, is black and white for him. And I mean, he has, you know, when he's given that ultimatum, um, I mean, choosing his family seems to be 
the best option for him because it doesn't, it's just, it's, you know, it's so interesting um, when you think about families with, with children who come out or even parents and, and how complicated oftentimes those relationships are when the parents aren't inherently bad people, they just are, they misunderstand um, the situation a lot of times. And, Mm -hmm. and you can really see that with him and his relationships with his mom and especially his dad. Um, There's like the, the chair scene, the lie chair, just eh, that whole little part really kind of hit home for me. I know that doesn't make sense, but I don't want to spoil anything. (laughs) Yeah. There's no, a I chair. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I actually felt one of the best parts of the book, in my opinion, was I really liked the way that they explored his relationship with his mother. Yes. Um, because I feel like she especially is in this very kind of morally gray area because she's kind of stuck in between her very religiously fundamental um, husband and her son, who obviously is trying to deal with all of this. And I just felt that that relationship felt so, and obviously like it is real, hence it felt real. Um, but I thought, (laughs) I just realized that I was, I was going to say it. Um, but I felt like he painted that incredibly well. And it was, there were moments that were very almost tender between the two of them. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, and it's, it's interesting. One of the main things that love and action, they try to break down is your relationship between your parents. Um, Mm -hmm. but it it was very touching and both she and the father, I thought, you know, even though they are periphery characters in somebody's internal battle, I thought they were pretty well-rounded characters in general. I mean, obviously, they're non-fiction people, but I thought he evoked them pretty well on the page. The The idea that his father is this kind of elderly um, Darth Vader type, you know, just... I, I could have <laughs> choose to, chosen a better comparison, but very scarred, you know, um, physically, yeah. not just emotionally. I thought that was something that he really evoked vividly, and you you can picture this kind of gone to seed football star who's now searching for meaning in his life and cares so much about his legacy. Oh, and it's it's very interesting because you know his his father has like these incredibly homophobic sort of opinions, but Gerard still finds himself admiring him, you know, and wanting to be like him, um, and wanting to be like a very strong and masculine protector sort of type, um, which is something he does not feel like he is. And and so that is so interesting, or that was so interesting to me while I was reading it. Yeah, I think that it's um, one of the things that is really interesting is I feel like most people who read it, even if they can't relate to it on other levels, um, it, it made me think about my relationship with my parents and like what my relationship with each of them and how like has influenced me as a person or how mm-hmm. it's influenced me. Um, because I do feel like a lot of it is him, partially because of the love and action activities and stuff, but breaking down, you know, what, who his father is, um, has done to who he is as a person. What do we think about John Smid? Oh, God. Just <laughs> as a character. John Smid is so, um, oh, gosh. And now I'm listening. He's very, okay, I'm. The word is like right on the tip of my tongue. It starts with an H because I, okay, I read this book forever ago. So I don't remember if they mention it, if I, if I found this out in the book or if it's on or if I read it online somewhere, but he came out as gay and he's like married now 
as of like 2014. Oh, that wasn't in the book. I don't think. Oh, okay. Wild. That's crazy. And so he is just, and when I read that, it made so much more sense to how devoted he is to this plan because he had been trying to push down his own problems for the better part of two decades or what he viewed as a problem. Um, Oh, and for, for, Con, uh, for context to those listening, John Schmid is mm. the instructor of Love and Action, the conversion therapy program. I have to say, like, obviously this isn't Conley's fault, but the name Smid just sounds like some evil villain character in, like, a Disney movie. It, <laughs> um, it does. Right? Am I the only one who felt that way? So it, I almost felt like, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, this guy's bad news. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I found him honestly a little bit terrifying just in that he's the kind of antagonist where, you know, you've met people like him. Um, you know, those people who are doing something bad, but believe that they're doing good in it. And I think that that's what is a bit scary about him as an antagonist is that he clearly thinks that he's doing the right thing and thinks that he's helping people, mm-hmm. um, which I think does give a very interesting perspective on this therapy mm-hmm. hypocrite that was the word i was looking for <laughs> <laughs> it is too early yeah, yeah I, I think that he's sort of a tragic character mm-hmm. um and nicole i know you'll appreciate this i think he's sort of like a javert sort of character you know <laughs> where he wants so badly to fulfill the sort of set of morals that he has in his mind but kind of find himself unable to do so mm-hmm. i would definitely agree with that Hello, everyone. It's Matt Neglia here, owner of NextBestPicture.com and host of the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm sorry to interrupt this episode of Next Best Adaptation. However, this is a preview episode, and the full episode is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers. If you would like to be a Patreon subscriber and get the rest of this episode of our review of Gerard Connolly's novel, Boy Erased, and its potential adaptation for the screen, you can subscribe to our Patreon page for as little as $1 a month. So by all means, head over to patreon.com, type in next best picture, and you will be subscribed to receive some exclusive podcast content, including the rest of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, we will see you all next time. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.